Everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we talk about important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. I'm your host, Anhui. Today, I talk to Dr. Melina Supia, the Deputy Director of Clinical Education in the National University Healthcare System, Singapore. She helms education and manages undergraduate, postgraduate, and simulation centre programmes. In this episode, we talk about empathy, a term which we use a lot in medical education. But what does it really mean? Based on her PhD thesis at the University of Liverpool, which is about an intervention with urology residents on learning empathy through art, we discuss the different types of empathy, if empathy can be measured, how can we learn empathy, and most curiously, what medicine can learn from the Singapore Airlines. Maybe we could start off with talking about what empathy really is. It seems like everyone has their own ideas about or understanding about what empathy entails, but maybe from a medical education point of view, what does it really mean? Yeah, there are many questions about the word empathy. We are hardwired as human beings to have inherent empathy with us. We observe that You know, young children, when they see something not quite right, they'll try and make it better for a child or another being in the room. They feel with the other person. It's not something that they've been taught. It's They just have it within them inherently. So defining it, if we take the cognitive aspect of empathy, it's being able to see what the person sees, what they feel, what they think. That particular aspect is also known as a theory of mind. So what they're aware of, what's in their mind. I actually really wanted to pick up on the point of empathy as a cognitive skill. Among laymen, like when we think of empathy, we think of it like, oh, as the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes that seems to like involve a component of emotion, but this is like a cognitive skill, which seems kind of like contradictory to what I would imagine it to be. I was wondering how would this relate to the concepts of doctor burnout and compassion fatigue? Well, in the literature, they do say that when medical students enter their clinical years, there is a significant decline in their empathy levels, and they're actually measuring cognitive empathy, so all the perspective taking and being able to, you know, understand what the person is going through. This apparently is just part and parcel of the day-to-day work that they do. Nobody does it intentionally. If we think that too much empathy is going to cause empathy fatigue or burnout, then we must be cognizant of the fact that we're not all the same. Some of us are better able to manage that and some of us are perhaps not so well trained or we've not been drilled in it. So empathy training is important and it's also important to be able to apply self-care and self-compassion because when we are drained, when we are exhausted, it's very hard to be empathetic. It's very hard to be compassionate. Having said that, people who are not seemingly empathetic or don't display it, it's like acting. 
we can see right through something that is not genuine, right? And it's almost worse. It's a bigger insult. So empathy can be taught where people learn to become extremely good actors, but acting doesn't make it fake. They act it so well that they enact it finally. So it becomes part of their professionalization process. So I was thinking about the the thing about acting and I think that there is a perception, a general perception that empathy is something which is innate or something which is inherent or something that was cultivated because of our childhood or personal upbringing. So I was wondering, could you maybe flesh out a bit of how we can teach empathy and how can we do it in a way that's effective and not fake? A good place to start would be in situational or contextual moments, either within a text. It could also be film, theatre, music. All these devices are helpful in a sense that they're quite easily available. And one of the most powerful is from our peers and our colleagues when we see something happening and We try and be like them. We try and speak like them. We may even use the same phrases that they use, nod our heads in the same way. How we listen, we can also listen with our eyes, not just with our ears, because there's a lot to be read and a lot to be seen in eyes. So eye contact is extremely important, and so is the rest of the body language. What we say, according to a researcher called Merabian, is maybe only about 20% conveyed through the words itself. The tone that we use, our facial expression, our body language counts for all the rest. So authenticity, sincerity has to be a whole. It has to be the words, with the eyes, with the body, and the heart. So it's takes a bit of work, but it's definitely not impossible. Then how about in the context of medical education? We do have standardized patients and we do have certain acronyms to help us remember like how we should treat patients. But I was wondering, is it enough to just, I mean, I know you mentioned that when you act, you don't just act it, when you do it for a long period and you enact it. Is this a realistic goal for medical education in some senses? Because Generally, medical students do come from a science background instead of uh, arts or humanities background. So they might be a little bit skeptical about acting or humanities and empathy could just be a fluffy thing in quotation marks um, to them. So how does this work out in reality in the sense of creating these programs that medical students will be receptive to or the faculty will be receptive to such that they give up that one biochemistry lecture to do this instead? I'd say that to convince people is not that difficult. Most times, even when I counsel students, residents, staff, they actually say, we've been talking for 50 minutes, nobody's done anything, no action has been taken, but the fact that you listened, the fact that you heard me in a way that helps me figure out my own emotions and my thoughts makes me feel so much better, yeah? So that two-way communication may seem like fluff, but, you know, the connection of the head, the heart, and the whole gamut of emotions that are running through the person's body um, is, in a way, 
calmed and the parasympathetic system is a little bit, there's a balm on it, if you like. It's uh, maybe cosmetic. It may not be long-lasting. But we do hope that being able to communicate well is going to make the person feel better. And as, you know, we move towards care more and more in the community, communication is key. Quite often, right at the end of a consultation, just the last 30 seconds, they say something like, by the way, and then the most important bit comes out, right? I lost my wife four weeks ago and, uh, you know, certain very terribly important information. It's not negligible at all. But if during that time we're together, it hasn't come out, but we've managed to establish some trust, show empathy, compassion, that will still be able to come out. You know, you've got my back. So I can tell you what I need to tell you and I'll be, it'll be safe with you. And on top of it, once I've told you, you can do something positive to help me about it. I don't feel worse for it. Yeah? Correct me if my understanding is wrong. Um, and actually, when we were doing, when I was in my second year, we did the communicating, oh, I remember the acronym, communicating with patients module. Um, the example that you brought up about the by the way, and then they drop a bomb on you just as the consultation's ending. That was also brought up as an example. And so, correct my understanding if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing from you is empathy is not at odds with good clinical practice because I think that, it, and it can even be beneficial or advantageous because I think like the general perception of empathy is, oh, you're going to take so much longer in your clinical consultation. But in fact, it can shorten it and make it more, I really hate this word, efficient in some senses. Um, yes. So the word efficiency, effectiveness, risk benefits, they're all forms of measurements, either with fractions, ratios, percentages. Uh, another word that will probably make your hair stand on end would be productivity, right? So they're necessary because we wouldn't know what we're looking at. We wouldn't know how much or how little of it is going on. So it's necessary. But it shouldn't be in the forefront of what we're doing. Yeah? If we do this and we get this result, so another word, outcome, there may be other factors that are in play, not just empathy. The various facets are difficult to pin down if you want to talk about how efficient and how effective it is. The easiest thing to look at is if it works, continue doing what works. If it doesn't work, try and find out which aspect of it doesn't work and change that, right? Some things don't work all the time. Some things work only for part of the time. When we work with children, punishing them and not trusting them is not going to be the way. So they have to be living their own lives, although still under your roof, but being able to tell you if something is not right. You don't want to find out uh, when it's too late, right? Same with mental health issues. Yeah. I think empathy is something which people might think is not measurable. I was wondering maybe uh, you could talk about the ways in which empathy is measured or maybe answer the broader question first, which is can it even be measured? And are there studies which show that empathy is like a cost-effective intervention for efficiency and productivity? 
So if we move away a little bit from medicine, if we have doubts to how we're going to measure empathy, just look at the service industries. Why does a passenger, why does a client feel a certain affiliation, want to go back, either if it's travel, you talk about an airline, a bus company, train, if it's hospitality, a certain hotel chain or you know group of people, today we have Airbnb, why would we go back? And again, it is because they've looked into the details of what makes our experience good. So the patient experience would be good if they were spoken to well, they were received well, they had good care. Sometimes they have to wait longer than they wanted to. Sometimes minor mistakes are made. But no one fixates on these things if the overall experience is good, right? So they do say there are studies, if you want to talk about evidence. Patients who feel that they've been dealt with in an empathetic manner are less likely to be litigious. They won't sue. So they're far more understanding. They're far more forgiving. They will want to be with you. Um, Colleagues will find that it's a joyous place to work when there's empathy between one another and our the people that we care for. So it's kind of like empathy has been shown to have economic benefits, but it's more than... Even if the, these benefits do exist, you should have empathy not just for these economic reasons, but also for reasons that are more than that. Yeah. In healthcare, especially public healthcare, we're not selling anything. We're not marketing ourselves in that sense. But confidence in the healthcare system because it is a a system that we are in and there are many ramifications to that system it's very clear people will say you know I'm, I'm going to x hospital and they choose something because they feel they they can trust the place and the people I think that's such a refreshing take on empathy especially when it comes from a different context aside from medicine because I think when you think about empathy in medicine then it goes round and round and round and round Um, I mean going back to the point about empathy as cognitive or empathy as like a competency I guess I was wondering um, because I know that there are several scales or inventories that you can use to measure empathy can it really be measured by these inventories? Yeah, as with all these scales, they are designed to measure certain aspects, but they're not probably going to be holistic enough. So there are a lot of acronyms. There's the Jefferson Perception of Empathy, then there's the Reactivity Index, and all the various types, even the CARE one where they measure empathy and compassion and how that's displayed They're useful tools, yeah, but they remain tools. The master of the tool, us, the human beings, are the ones that we, we need to focus on. These surveys provide you with numbers on a Likert scale, so they're pretty good indicators, but they don't tell you what it actually is. If my experience was bad, which part of it? Was it a bad that stayed with me for a long time or was it a bad that I forgot once I left, you know? So qualitative data 
is just as important when we measure empathy, talk to people, conduct interviews, focus groups. These are extremely important. I um, also teach awareness through mindfulness, all these practices that require a lot of introspection. So if we look within ourselves, we can already do a self-measure. You know, am I aware of this? Did I think this? Did I say this? Did I feel this? Right? So we have to be extremely honest and um, really taking stock. Until we're aware of it, we wouldn't know. And when in doubt, am I doing the right thing? Am I responding to what my patient needs? Ask the patient. They'll tell us what we can do with them that is right or wrong. I think they are the beacons and they're going to set the path for us. Yeah, I guess because I I think I was looking at your thesis and there was also a bit in which if during medical school, an individual is not pointed out that they are not empathetic or they have a certain character flaw, then they're three times more likely to commit it when they are qualified as a doctor. Um, I mean, even thinking about my clinical experience so far in the hospital, I'm sure medical school doesn't attract people who are bad per se. But sometimes when you, what, what you see in the wards or what you see in the hospital doesn't correlate with what you imagine good clinical practice to be or what an empathetic doctor to be. And I just wonder, you know, what happened there? I guess um, I think it would be useful to move the discussion from theoretical or pedagogical to reality. And I know that you've done some classes with the residents at NUH Urology Department. Maybe you could talk a bit about your experiences there so far and what have you heard from residents and are there plans to expand the program? Um, Not all the programs are across. Initially, we had the more junior doctors uh, attending the empathy classes. They would also include communication Things like announcing bad news because you can't do it in a non-empathetic manner. There were ethics classes. There was like informed consent, um, what is mental capacity, what isn't, and all all these things. Um, So teaching empathy, as you can imagine, is not easy. I must congratulate you because I did not expect you to go through almost 200 pages of my doctoral thesis and there's all that, you know, literature review and all the data and discussion. But the outcomes, so the findings of that particular study using mixed methods, quantitative and qualitative, because you talked about the surveys earlier on, was that yes, empathy can be taught. There is a significant increase in empathy levels and, of course, cognition of it, awareness. But it cannot just be taught once and then like a subject where you teach it and then, okay, you're skilled, you've got the aptitudes, run with it. For the next 30 years of your career, you are deemed empathetic. I put a stamp on it. There's your certificate and off you go. It's not because empathy will wax and wane. And if we're not careful to keep repeating and teaching and making sure that people are constantly aware of themselves and how they are when they're with other people, then it will be lost. Yeah. 
So teaching it, yes, it works. One-off doesn't work. It has to be repeated. It has to be cultivated, just like any important cultural value, right? And that's why I find the arts or the humanities particularly applicable to this because you can't listen to music once or you can't just walk into, into a museum once and say, oh, I'm very cultured, I'm very cultivated because I've you know, done it. It's an ongoing experience. It's uh, something that is going to be pursued lifelong. And we can read a book at 12 and read the same book at 30 and find very different things in it because of our own maturity, because that self, remember we said awareness and ability to know who we are, changes over time. And that allows us to realize what's going on and to practice things differently as well. So um, yeah, empathy has to be taught again and again and again, or at least if not taught, facilitated. Teaching might be too grand a word or too ambitious, but to facilitate it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So something when I was looking at the literature for empathy in medical humanities is that it is, it's heavily from the West. And I was wondering, like some of these cultural references might not be as relevant in Singapore. I mean, empathy is like a universal trait, but it's also culturally specific and sensitive. Are there anything which Singapore is doing that the world isn't doing because we are serving Singaporean patients um, in terms of teaching empathy? Or um, how has the... And this is just a question out of my own personal curiosity, really. But um, has there been a way in which the, the Western forms of teaching empathy or medical education has been contextualized in Singapore? Yeah, this was one of my... During the Viva of my thesis, right? Because I reported that it was also important that we looked at how culture impacts how we learn about empathy and how we enact it. And um, during the focus group discussions, they actually came back to me and said, yeah, it would be helpful if we had this Korean drama because it talks about doctors and the way patients are being dealt with and being completely ignorant about Korean dramas. They sent me the links. I watched them. I tried to find out. So again, cognitive empathy, stepping into their shoes, seeing what they see, watching what they watch, the kind of Korean dramas they were looking at, and why it spoke to them why it was applicable to our Asian context. Now that we're talking about narratives, um, are there any examples that you think would be, that you would like to share? Yeah, okay. I must put a disclaimer here and be honest and say I'm lifting out out of a health humanities uh, volume. It's about, um, you know, medical education and what its boundaries are. So it does say that the intention is that medicine should reconfigure its boundaries to become interdisciplinary and at the same time become disciplined through the humanities. So this is the first time we hear that humanities can actually create some form of discipline because we normally think that it's a bunch of fluff and a mess, right? On the premise that arts and humanities approaches can foster significant interpretive inquiry into illness, disability, suffering, and care. 
This is by Bolton. And it goes on to say, Matters are made meaningful when people understand and make sense of their actions, feelings and thoughts. Often this occurs through people creating narratives about themselves and the events in the world. This understanding involves a continuous interpretive process which is informed by the individual's prior knowledge, experiences, emotions, beliefs and attitudes. This is the sense of reality. It's their reality when we want to talk about it. It's their narrative and we're there to facilitate it. It could be with a colleague that is not doing well. It could be with our patient, but it's everyone that we come into contact with because as being part of the helping profession, we help. So that is the bottom line. We cannot not help. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. If you liked it, please share and subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Third Spacing.